You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Fong. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is episode number 127, and today we're going to be talking about the uh, work of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, my name is Danny Anderson. I'm an assistant professor of English uh, at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm sitting in still for David Grubbs, and uh, joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who is also assistant professor professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how are you? Doing pretty well. Good to hear. And, and uh, we're joined by Michael Farmer, who is uh, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, uh, how's the weather up there? It's quite snowy. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, as it should be, I think. Yeah, you Minnesota. know, it doesn't really shut us down the way it shuts you guys down <laughs> for a week. Minnesota just exists in my imagination as as being filled with snow. So I think in, it's, in the winter it's it's pretty accurate. I mean, <laughs> yes. in in the summer it's quite green because you know when the snow melts it turns into water and it waters the plants yeah. and then it's very pretty. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, before we begin today, I think we have uh, an email. And uh, Michael, do you want to take that? So this email is from Robin Morris, who is um, from Massachusetts, and, and she says that she's been binge listening to episodes, that it's what she does when engaging in manual labor, like shoveling snow. And did I mention shoveling snow? And, oh, yeah, shoveling, you get it. I live in Massachusetts. Um, so she has a, a response to a couple of different episodes. She says that she uh, she herself has two terminal degrees but is a full-time adjunct, mostly teaching online, though she does do some face-to-face at one of the schools she works for. And she says um, – that she doesn't, because she works so much, have time to go into all the observations she'd like to make, but she wants to say two things about our online education podcast. First of all, um, she doesn't think we did enough about the about adjunct labor. She, she, she points out this report that says that uh, contingent academics, so full-time non-tenure track, part-time faculty members, graduate student employees, make up more than 75% of the total instructional staff as of fall 2009. And, uh, and, and and she suggests that the way we talked about the issue on our podcast demonstrates our unexamined position in the 25% tier, which is probably fair. Mm-hmm. And then she also wants to know who needs higher education anyway. So she talks about the changing demographics of people needing credentials versus the old humanist ideals of higher education that we uphold. So what has changed there and what should change? She says these two issues really need to be addressed before deciding whether the, they accurately assess whether online education is good or bad or whether there's some difference between profit and nonprofit. She's worked for both, she says. In a nutshell, for-profits turn over some profit to shareholders, other corporate owners. Nonprofits turn it back into the system with new buildings, arenas, things like that. And she says in both cases, top administrators rake it in, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true. Do you guys, either one of you, want to take on this question of who needs higher education anyway? Oh, I mean, I mean that's a series of about three episodes right there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm filing that under episodes for the future. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost feel like the term doesn't necessarily 
uh, address all the variants that, that it's, it's supposedly you know striving for, like in terms of higher education. Like, I mean, if you're meaning credentialing, and we're talking about these sort of more older humanistic ideas, then I, I don't even know that it's the same thing that you're talking about. So yeah, which I think may be her point. Hmm. And then um, on our Great American Novel episode, she says, we must read Cather, at least O Pioneers, My Antonia, and Death Comes for the Archbishop. I've read My Antonia and Death Comes for the Archbishop, as well as Cather's first book of short stories, Song of the Lark, uh, The Professor's House. I like Cather. We talked about doing a podcast about Cather, but uh, we ended up doing the Alice Monroe, and we, we felt like, like they have kind of similar vibes, so the Cather episode may still be coming, but it, it, we wanted to give mm-hmm. it a little space between that and Monroe. Right, right. And then she says, have you read Wharton, which I have, House of Mirth and Age of Innocence? The former have I loved and the latter have I hated. <laughs> and then she says, notice what you were missing, by which I assume she means we were missing female authors, which is fair. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll just say, I mean, not in my defense, but as a mea culpa, I mean, I was going off of novels that I read by and large 10, 15 years ago. Um, the area in which I teach, which is to say literature before the Renaissance, not a whole lot of novels being written. So I, (laughs) yeah, and not a whole lot of female authors either. No, no. Well, and I think that that, I mean, she rightly points that out. And I think that that's probably in my case, at least I speak for myself, a function of the, uh, the problems with canonicity. Uh, I mean, it just sort of almost defines the way that you can even think about subjects like that. So I think that it's, it's a really good thing to point out. Mm-hmm. And we did talk briefly, at least, about Toni Morrison. I mean, we didn't examine any of her novels, but we talked about her as someone who, who would not have been allowed in under the old canon system. And that we thought, right. you know, I think I said specifically I didn't want anybody getting through college without reading Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. And then I sheepishly admitted that I don't teach Toni Morrison. <laughs> Which is not true. I, I when I when I do uh, when I do comp two, I teach uh, recitative, recitative, however you pronounce that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yes, she's she's right. We 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 didn't talk enough about women, but I have read Cather and Wharton, and uh, you know I, I think they're as good as any other author from from their era. And I, I apologize for leaving them out. Well, that uh, actually is a very strange and ironic introduction to our podcast today, which is about Alfred Hitchcock, who, of course, uh, has a very complicated relationship with women. And, and so in some ways, that's a, a perfect setup for where we're, where we're going today. Uh, and I have to say, before we begin, that this uh, subject came to me uh, not out of any sort of anniversary date or anything like that, but it's probably a function of uh, being snowed in for an entire week and having gotten... <laughs> Uh, Blu-ray uh, box set of some Hitchcock movies for Christmas, and finally getting through some of those, and uh, and so it was just sort of in fresh in my mind, and so this is uh, the inspiration for me uh, for the, for choosing this episode for this week, and uh, I thank you both for uh, bearing with me on that. So, uh, but uh, so Nathan, let's start with you today. Uh, uh, the way we've begun several episodes recently with personal engagement. How did you first come by Hitchcock's work? Uh, how do you feel about it? Uh, and when you've had your say, just pass the mic over to Michael. Well, it's interesting when I became aware of Hitchcock. I mean, I tended to think of him merely as a predecessor to the scary movies uh, that I was already aware of. So, you know, in the theaters there in the mid to late 80s, when I started to become aware of movies, uh, were the Friday the 13th movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And, you know, I had heard that Hitchcock 
also made scary movies. So I, I guess I sort of assumed that, uh, you know, Hitchcock was the, the person who made movies about young women getting killed uh, before these guys did. And then, of course, the first Hitchcock movie I actually saw was Psycho, which just confirmed that stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually a long time before, you know, someone uh, suggested to me that Hitchcock was, you know, a filmmaker, you know, that people studied seriously and, you know, uh, tried to examine the structure of and so on and so forth. Uh, for me, he was just a uh, one rung on the ladder of the slasher film enterprise. So, uh, Michael, I mean, when you first encountered him, what was your experience? We didn't have cable when I was a kid. So I got Nickelodeon, which was the big deal, um, really like twice a year. When we went to stay with my grandmother and we went on vacation, we, we stayed in a condo every year in Destin, Florida. Well, I, uh, I was obsessed with Nickelodeon as I, I suppose children who don't have cable would be right. I mean, it, it's a deprivation issue. And I would mm. even watch Nick at Night, and they they showed old television shows. They'd show Get Smart. Uh, that's the one I remember really liking. But they showed Green Acres and stuff like that. So I would just watch it for, you know, hours and hours at a time. Um, and one of the shows they showed was uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And uh, it terrified me. I, I don't think I ever actually watched an episode, but I think just the just the music at the beginning, the dun-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, just, just <laughs> like really terrified the eight-year-old me. And I, I remember, I knew the show was half an hour long. And so every night when that came on, I would switch to the only other channel I knew on cable, which was the Weather Channel, and watch that for half an hour rather than watch this uh, terrifying <laughs> uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now, of course, as an adult, I've gone back and watched episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And, and like, it's not a scary show for the most part at all. It's mostly just kind of funny and silly. And I mean, I guess there's some kind of suspenseful parts, but for the most part, it's not a, it's not a horror anthology show. It's not night gallery. It's not even the twilight zone, but uh, for whatever reason that, that program filled me with dread when I was a kid. And that is my first impression of Hitchcock. I don't think I saw an actual Hitchcock film until college. Mm. Um, and not so much because I was afraid of him, just because I, I didn't grow up in a family that really loved film or anything like that. As I said, we didn't have cable, um, so they, you know, we didn't have HBO. They weren't showing. I guess they showed some films on um, broadcast television, but I never saw Hitchcock till I was in college. I suppose is correct. And I didn't really like him until, uh, you, you know, it was right before college. Actually, we went to uh, Universal Studios, and they used to have this big Hitchcock exhibit. And, and I remember. Um, becoming very interested in him then because they, they took you through some of the big scenes of his films. You would, you would use a telescope to find the murder in rear window and, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they had stuff like that. And, and I remember being interested then, but, uh, I really, I, I didn't start watching him until I was in college. Well, my, yeah, that's my answer is almost a, a mix of your two. Cause I, you know, everyone knows that I, I sort of have an affinity for monster movies and, and I loved night gallery and twilight zone when I was a kid. And for, so for me, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents was sort of in that tradition. And, and so that was definitely my first, uh, uh, like in, in indoctrination <laughs> with, with Hitchcock if you want. Uh, but it's also had a lot to do though. Now that I've had time to think about it with sort of the, 
the image of Alfred Hitchcock almost, or even not almost, but more than any sort of specific movie or, or television program that I saw is sort of just the iconography of, of that sort of shadow figure that comes in, steps into the screen and, uh-huh. and his, and his, uh, <laughs> his, uh, his voice and, and his, uh, Good kind of, yes, the, the macabre humor and all that sort of thing. And so that is very sort of, um, striking to me. Uh, and so even before I knew anything about Hitchcock, you sort of felt like there was this mythical figure in front of you on, on TV. And, uh, and if he, of course, uh, I was very disappointed if you see like, uh, photographs or something about a vertigo for example you think mm-hmm. of this being this sort of terrifying movie uh but it really it's about a guy lusting after a girl <laughs> in very bizarre ways and so like when you see some of these movies uh, thinking that it's one thing and actually seeing what it actually is it, it could be alienating and seem sort of dull and so like it wasn't until i was in college before i started like watching these movies on their own merits instead of the sort of uh, the, the tainted uh, image that I had of them, I think, uh, which kind of clouded the way I saw them. And so I think that that, that television show had a lot to do with uh, not just marketing his films, but sort of marketing an image that uh, in some ways belies what's going on in the films. Well, and his, I mean, his personality is so wrapped up in like the public understanding of his films, right down to the uh, the cameo parts and everything. Mm-hmm. The you know I, I obviously the TV show didn't begin that because even if you look at posters for Psycho, a lot of them have him in full figure on them, but mm-hmm. the TV show really pushes that along. Yeah, and even I mean his older movies. I mean he when he was before the TV show, he was a popular movie director, and so his name is as big or bigger than the title of the film on on the screenshot and so uh yeah he was definitely uh a, a, kind of a master marketer of self uh, uh before that really caught on i think so he was james well, franco before james franco <laughs> <laughs> oh let's not do that to him come on uh, <laughs> oh so michael hitchcock uh, as we're saying has had or had a practically unprecedented career in terms of longevity. Uh, I mean, he's this is a silence to swear words sort of career he's doing. Uh, yet he wasn't always so highly regarded in critical circles. Can you maybe spin us through the reception hip- history of his work and maybe take some time to speculate a little bit about why he became so universally hailed as a genius? Uh, is it the work itself, the persona that we've just been talking about? Is there some mythology? And when you're done, can you uh, pass it on to Nathan? Yeah, you guys may have to help me with this a little bit. But um, he, people forget that he made a number of silent films before the, the talkies that made him famous, um, most of which were not particularly successful, and at least one of which got shut down in the middle of production because the studio lost its faith in Hitchcock to direct it. So, I mean, he was a failure for a good five to ten years before he was a success at all. And then he releases this silent film called The Lodger, which is really the first recognizably Hitchcock Hitchcock film, from my understanding. It it has it has a, a trope that you get in a lot of Hitchcock films, including um, North by Northwest and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, you, you get this guy who is innocent, but who is treated as though he is guilty. And so... Um, you can you can kind of read the lodger both as his first popular success, which it was, and, and his first um, film that that showed what would be the the Hitchcock 
I don't know, one of Hitchcock's customary concerns. As for when um, critics started seeing him as a great filmmaker, that is information I could not figure out. Um, what I think is interesting about him is that he is, he, he is simultaneously considered one of the great filmmakers. In fact, in the eyes of some critics, the greatest, right? I mean, th- there's, a, there's a real case to be made for Hitchcock being the master of the form. But at the same time, he is a very um, popular filmmaker. Nobody groans about having to watch Hitchcock the way they might about having to watch a Truffaut film or a Godard film, both of whom worshipped Hitchcock and who uh, used him as, as one of the basi- bases for like the auteur theory that, that became very popular in the 60s and 70s. So I guess part of the reason that, he's so, that he became so important is because his films – Though they are a range of styles, you know, they're, they're not all suspense films. They're, they're adventure films and romances and suspense films and all sorts of other stuff. They all feel like Hitchcock. And so, so it's, it's very easy to see him as, as one of the first auteur filmmakers. Um, the other thing he does is bring to um, popular film in Britain and later America uh, art house style. So... If you think about a film we're going to talk about quite a bit, Strangers on a Train, Strangers on a Train uses an awful lot of techniques from German Expressionism. It, it uses shadows the same way that a movie like The Cabinet of Doctor, is it Caligari? I can mm-hmm. never remember. I always want to call him Calamari. Caligari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it uses shadows the same way that film does, but it does so in a way that is very accessible to... Uh, people who don't know a lot about film who might not want to go see The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh, but nobody groans about having to see Strangers on a Train. So I, I think that's part of it, is that he manages to bridge this divide between the popular level moviegoer and the upper crust film scholar, filmmaker, you know. The people who, like Godard and Truffaut, can find a lot to love in Hitchcock, just like the people who like... Um, mainstream Hollywood pictures. Mm-hmm. But his success comes fairly early on. It's not like he, he languished for 35 years and then Psycho made him made him successful. I mean, uh, the man who knew... T- I always want to call it the man who wasn't there because apparently I'm really bad at film names. The, the man who knew too much <laughs> is like 1934, the first version of that film. And that was a hit, you know? So mm-hmm. so he, he finds success fairly early on, just not as early as we think. And And... Most of us forget about his silent movies, which I think toured last summer. A group of nine of them toured at art house theaters around the United States. So, I mean, there's there's people trying to make people more aware of the, the those early films that most of us haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Nathan, if I, what have I left out? Oh, the only thing I would add to that, I think you've done a fairly good job of summarizing, is that you know it, it's by and large uh, Hitchcock's corpus that becomes the subject matter of the early film studies movement in the academy. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, as I understand the history, uh, the academic discipline rises up largely to account for Hitchcock's corpus. Uh, and, of course, that's oversimplifying it a little bit, but, you know, the, the reason that folks weren't writing about the things that we're going to be talking about today, you know, during those early years when they were, uh, you know, cinematic hits, uh, is because the vocabulary actually developed later in order to talk about Hitchcock films. 
Uh, Danny, I mean, uh, am I oversimplifying that, or is that a fair estimation of it? No, I think that, that is fair, and I think it's related to what Nathan was talking about with the, the French filmmakers, uh, Truffaut and Godard and people like that, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Truffaut. Um, he, as a filmmaker himself, like saw something in Hitchcock's films that um, made sp- such specific, unique use of, of the medium that other filmmakers didn't necessarily. At the time, um, uh, like film was thought of as sort of a, a, a subgenre of literature in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so it was, mm-hmm. it was sort of uh, like ancillary in that way. And uh, Hitchcock, for example, or for, for one, I mean, I'm not suggesting he's the first person to do this, but he certainly did it with as much skill as anybody did. Consciously made use of the specific medium that he was uh, uh, dealing with, and in fact made that the subject of many of his films uh, itself. I mean, when you look at a movie like Rear Window, for example, uh, Truffaut um, was famously being, uh, he said that he was being interviewed by somebody before Hitchcock was an important filmmaker and just a petty popular filmmaker, uh, and they were, he was sort of making fun of him for liking someone who likes Rear Window, and he said, well, the only reason you like Rear Window is because you don't know what, the, what Greenwich Village is really like. Uh, and he said, well, I, Rear Window is not about Greenwich Village, it's about cinema, and I do know what cinema is about. And, so, and this was uh, uh, his reasoning for seeing something special in, in Hitchcock. Uh, and so it's really the uh, dealing with the auteur theory that uh, Michael brought up earlier, uh, those filmmakers that first started taking him uh, seriously as, as a filmmaker. And then in the sort of mid-60s, you have these academic studies coming up. One that comes to mind for me, uh, I'm sure it's not the first study, but it's a significant one of the first studies, is by Robin Wood called Hitchcock's Films. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he uh, later repackages this as Hitchcock's Films Revisited with, with some like further contemplation about it with some distance. But um, uh, that's really one of the, and, and really he, in the preface and the introduction of that, he's overtly trying to make the case for this is somebody that uh, academics should take seriously. This isn't just um, pandering to uh, suspenseful uh, audiences who have bad taste, right? This is, there's actually some really interesting work going on here. So it's around that time with the rise of uh, this sort of uh, French new wave sorts of sensibilities in cinema and the increasing importance of cinema as its own uh, artistic language. I think like you guys have just suggested really well that it, it really Hitchcock becomes kind of the model by which people began studying film, like exactly what right. you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, Nathan, uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about some of the main major concerns in Hitchcock's works? I've just talked about filmmaking itself as being one of them, but there are a lot of mm-hmm. themes and psychoses and fears and, and, uh, and he also did comedies, right? I mean, so, uh, but what, which, what does his films grapple with? Uh, in, in answering, try to maybe give us a few examples of some movies that do particular artistic or already ideological work for Hitchcock. And then when you're done, uh, let Michael take a turn. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about one of them that I really started to notice uh, when I actually started to watch, you know, a, a, a small number of Hitchcock films, and started noticing common threads, and that is uh, a very tense relationship with modern psychology. Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned psychosis. Uh, you know, that is a, a category that you know is sort of a a newly dominant way to think about madness in the 20th century. Uh, it is, you know, something that indicates that. Uh, mental health is something that we can talk about and, you know, that 
the madness that, you know, previous vocabularies for is now something that, you know, can be well analyzed. I mean, to, to put a, a term to it. And so a couple films where, where this plays out, one of them, uh, spellbound, uh, you get these bizarre dream sequences, uh, in which the events of the movie are actually taking on different shapes as the movie wears on, uh, not as a result of acts, and actions by characters on the screen, but rather because of the shifting states of one character in particular. So when he goes into these dream sequences, I mean, it, it's, it's honestly a little bit disturbing. Uh, you get these, you know, bizarre landscapes of eyeballs looking at him and, you know, uh, you get this, you know, booming voice, you know, with, as I remember, I mean, sort of talking nonsense at him. And, you know, the upshot, I, I think we can give spoilers since all these movies are like 50 or more years old, right? Sure. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the upshot is that he eventually becomes convinced that the murderer he's looking for is actually himself. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that notion that, you know, the mystery is solved not by the finding of clues but by psychological states is, is you know, just unavoidable in there. Of course, the most famous, you know, psycho psychoanalysis in in a Hitchcock film is the very last scene of Psycho mm. in which you <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I you know, I mean, I, I actually th- this doesn't really reveal much. I mean, the last scene is simply someone sitting and talking in a very deadpan way about the mental states of characters you've just watched for an hour and a half. Uh, you, you know uh, how Twain sa- or uh, Hemingway says that Huckleberry Finn should have ended two thirds of the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Psycho should have ended right before that last scene. Well, but here's the thing. I mean, I, what, what I see that scene as doing is it sort of gives the lie to the dry clinical language of psychoanalysis, right? Hmm. Uh, you, as the viewer, have have witnessed this intense, frightening, emotional journey with the characters in this film, and then this guy's sitting here, you know, as if it's something that he just looked at on a microscope slide. Uh, so, I mean, that the, those are two movies, I mean, where those sorts of things are playing out. Uh, you know, of course, they're they're not the only two, but, I mean, they're the two that immediately come to my mind. Uh, Michael, are there other themes or common threads that you'd want to follow, or do you want to make more comments about the last scene of Psycho? Psycho. So you're you're (laughs) suggesting that that's like a knowing dismissal of of psychoanalytic readings of the film? Okay, well, maybe I've been too convinced by Altour theory. (laughs) I'm convinced by that. I'm sorry. So that's that's what you're that's what you believe too, Danny. That, that this is I, this is just a uh, this is this is Hitchcock dismissing psychoanalytic readings of no 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 not dismissing but he is certainly casting it into relief against what you've just experienced as the viewer. Yeah, I think that Hitchcock, at that point in his career, particularly, is so in command of everything on that screen, um, and that I feel like the it, the length of that scene it's like ten minutes long. Uh, oh yeah, it, yeah. Well, yeah. It, <laughs> that scene uh just to me makes it almost like it draws attention to its almost parody function in the film um and also i feel like it's a bit of a of a distraction a purposeful distraction from the uh 
kind of the, the, the function that that movie has in implicating the viewer and, and, and as voyeuristic. Uh, uh, the whole time that movie is really about the act of watching brutal movies. And, and it's almost pointing a finger at the viewer, making them feeling guilty. So when he's doing the psychoanalysis of Norman Bates, I think he's really doing, uh, he's making everybody sit through a therapy session uh, after having seen this movie and, and trying to, <laughs> uh, to deal with it. So I, I think that it actually serves a... a I mean, it may be annoying to watch, but I think that's its very point. And, and I so think it's, it it's like a, the prologue to Lolita. Uh, yeah, and and the ending of Portnoy's complaint uh, in the same way. And so, yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree with Nathan. I disagree with you. Apparently, what do what do you think about it? <laughs> I, I I have just always assumed it was a bad scene put onto an otherwise good movie. You know, that, that Hitchcock kind of couldn't wait to explain what was wrong with the guy. But maybe I am an unsophisticated viewer. <laughs> no, you're not. A simple country lawyer. <laughs> well, what, so, uh, what, so what, is, theme, what's, what theme do you want to sit on then, Michael? Universal guilt is what I want to sit on. I, I hinted at this earlier that, that in Hitchcock films, people are always either guilty of things they didn't know they were guilty of or um, accused of being guilty and then in some way are. You talked about Spellbound. Um, you, you, can, you can think about this in terms of Psycho as well, that, that Bates is uh, – it, it's so impossible to believe that anybody doesn't know the twist in Psycho. But if you don't know the twist in Psycho, <laughs> fast forward for a second, that, that Bates somehow does not know that he is acting as his mother, right? That, that, this is, that this is some darkness within him that he can't control. And, and whether you want to psychoanalyze that or not, he's, he's guilty without knowing it. Or think about the scene in um, – in rear window where Jeff suddenly realizes that people could be looking back through binoculars at him and Lisa doing things that are not socially acceptable. It's, it's this idea that, that inside all of us lurks this, this antisocial monster. And and maybe we're still, maybe we're still parked on psychoanalysis and maybe this is just civilization and it's discontents at work. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but, but, Hitchcock deals better with guilt than any filmmaker I know. Again, think of Strangers on a Train, and for the life of me, I cannot remember the names of the two people, but Bruno and the other fella. Guy. Guy. Well, that's easy enough. A guy named Guy. (laughs) And that he ends up being implicated in this murder that he did not ask for, you know, but that he is still in a, maybe not in a legal sense, but in a moral sense, guilty of. Because he wanted it to happen. Um, so Hitchcock's very, very good at that. Uh, and, and if you're like me and have the stress dream that you've killed someone and are on the run from, uh, from the law, Hitchcock appeals to you because, uh, because this is, this is kind of the world you live in. You're, you're guilty of things without ever meaning to do them. Mm. Hmm. Guilty all the time. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, did you know, Nathan, that the, the dream sequence you were talking about was designed by Salvador Dali. Uh, oh, no, it, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, and it, if you look at it, it does sort of have, I mean, some of those same sorts of uh, images like should seem familiar in that way. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and, and it goes right into the, the psychoanalysis. When you're talking about surrealism, you're talking about a, a movement that, that just really prizes the, the subconscious, right? And, sure, and so I, sure. I think that that makes perfect sense there. And um, mm-hmm. um, the one thing I would add, too, that um, really stands out to me in, in many of his films, particularly a film like North by Northwest, uh, when you have 
a, a human being sort of caught up in kind of faceless bureaucratic systems. Um, and, and so the human being is sort of uh, helpless from this. And there's one scene um, in the, if you haven't seen that movie, it's one of the great Cary Grant collaborations. I, 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 I never really like Cary Grant unless he's in a Hitchcock movie, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and I, like, I love him in Hitchcock movies, both uh, the early Cary Grant movies like Notorious and North by Northwest. Right. Replaced. It, it, it's kind of like uh, George Clooney and the Coen brothers. That's really yes. the only time I can stand George Clooney. <laughs> well, who is kind of our Cary Grant. He is. Oh, yeah, much. yeah. You're right. That's a really good uh, analogy there. But uh, it, it, in uh, North by Northwest, he uh, is been mistakenly accused of killing somebody like Michael's just saying uh, mm-hmm. and, and it looks to, looks to everybody around him except the viewer that he stabbed this man in the UN uh, and so he and then there's a photograph taking uh, t- the photographer taking a picture of him like looking into the camera reaching for the knife that's in the guy's back and then he goes on the run and then there's this amazing shot from like atop the UN next to the building and I think this is a painting that's made to look like a shot but for all the world, uh, it's this long shot of, uh, or a wide angle shot, like a wide shot of the ground below taken straight down from the, from the sky. And for all the world, it's, so it's the God angle, right? For all the world, Cary Grant looks like a little figure running around in a maze that looks like a modernist painting. Uh, and, and it's mm-hmm. like, uh, it's to me like such, uh, such an indication of the kinds of, uh, uh, the, the interest that Hitchcock has in how human beings get caught up in these sort of like faceless, almost Kafka-esque uh, systems. And, and he's talked about in many ways as being a kind of a, a modernist figure, uh, Hitchcock. And, and I think that that's uh, uh, one thing that, where at one place where that kind of comes out in his movies is the, the, the conflict between an individual and, uh, and their psychoses uh, and the like, uh, bureaucratic structures of, of society. Uh, and you see that over and over, all the way through uh, to later movies like Frenzy. Uh, you see that like, in there, too. Um, so, we're, we're, so, in fact, that the law becomes just as much as an adversary as any kind of real villains. And, and I feel like that that's uh, one of the more interesting and troubling things that uh, his movies sort of do for us. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong about that? I mean, are there other? Uh, I mean, I, I can think of other movies where that happens, but but I think that that's that's one thing that stands up stands out to me. Um, well, Michael, I think it would be at this point uh, grossly irresponsible to talk about Hitchcock's work work without uh, addressing his treatment of women. And you can talk artistically or literally here, uh, but uh, or maybe both. But what are some ways in which his work creeps us out today? To, to uh, say it frankly, uh, is his reputation for misogyny well-earned, overblown, or something more complicated? And when you're done, can you let Nathan uh, take a shot? Yeah, I mean, obviously there are not a lot of strong women characters in his movies that are also good, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's very famous for his use of the femme fatale, um, as in, I believe North by Northwest, although I haven't seen that in a long time. Isn't Ava Marie Saint? Uh, isn't she? Isn't she pretty wicked in that movie? She's sort of a double agent. Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot of women leading men to their deaths, right? So in yeah. um, <laughs> in uh, Vertigo, for example, she she she's untrustworthy. She doesn't lead him to his death, but she she, she she's false. Uh, in in Psycho, you have the Janet Lee character, who's you know you feel for her because she gets killed in the shower, and you don't want to take a shower after that. But <laughs> you, you forget that for the first half hour of that movie, she's a thoroughly 
disreputable, distrustful person who pretty much deserves what she has coming. Right. Um, even in a movie like dial in for murder, where you're, where your sympathies are more or less with the Grace Kelly character, uh, you're still kind of, you know, she, she's still, she's not evil. She's obviously the good guy, but she, she still kills a man, right? She's still powerful in a way that undermines male society In strangers on a train. You have that shrewish harpy of an ex-wife um, <laughs> who gets, you know, th- there you really do kind of not, not feel all that bad for her probably, except that she kind of looks like my wife. So it's hard for me to watch that without feeling sorry for her. <laughs> I always thought she looked like Flannery O'Connor. Uh, does your wife look like Flannery O'Connor? My, my wife. Yeah. She doesn't <laughs> not look like Flannery O'Connor, I suppose. Just um, the glasses, I think. Really the only fully developed, strong, sympathetic female character I know of in, in Hitchcock is Grace Kelly from Rear Window where she, she really is the equal of the, of the male character and in some ways his superior and she, her, her philosophy kind of wins out. But for the most part, you get these often blondes who are either dangerous to men or fodder for men. And sometimes both, um, you know, mm-hmm. like, like Janet Lee and psycho who, who starts one way and ends the other. Uh, now, um, Hitchcock has come under a great deal of attention lately um, because they, they made a couple of movies. Uh, there was a made-for-HBO movie called The Girl starring uh, Tippi, uh, not Tippi, as Tippi Hedren, um, Sienna Miller. And then Scarlett mm-hmm. Johansson played uh, Janet Lee in, in Hitchcock. And, and it, it has brought to – these movies have brought to public consciousness uh, some of the ways that Hitchcock enjoyed, if you believe them, psychologically tormenting his actresses to get better performance from them. So, I mean, rather famously, Tippi Hedren did almost no movies after, um, she was in Rebecca too, I think, but after, after the birds, because, because of the way she was treated by Hitchcock. And, uh, I'm, I'm not enough of a scholar to know whether those accusations are true. I, it, it is well known that Hitchcock didn't much care for actors in general. He, he called them cattle at one point, and, and he, he said that they should be treated as members of the scenery, particularly. And by the way, when they pressed him on that cattle comment a few years later, he said, well, what I me- all I meant was that they should be treated like cattle. <laughs> Which is a funny response, but doesn't doesn't make you think that he didn't um, psychologically torment poor Tippy Hedron. Right. Uh, That's what I call a Kobe Bryant apology. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, in some ways, you, you brought up the voyeurism of Psycho earlier. In, in, in some ways, I think... Hitchcock is is kind of the prototypical male gaze, right? You have these beautiful women who are either feared or tormented, and the camera just can't keep its filthy hands off of her. Mm-hmm. Do either one of you would either one of you like to defend Hitchcock on charges of sexism? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but I'll agree with you, and, and I'll admit I'm more familiar with the movies where the woman is the victim. Uh, and I mean, you're right. I mean, it is one of those things where the camera loves them, but it loves to watch them in pain. And, you know, I mean, it, it is disturbing. I mean, when you take a step back and think about that, the, the line between Hitchcock and Friday the 13th is not as thick as we would like it to be. Um, all right. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, the I'll philosophical line. I mean, obviously, obviously, <laughs> Hitchcock's films are better made. Obviously, they have more to say, 
But in terms of in terms of their treatment of the female body, I, it's true. I, and I think that the one thing I would add uh, to what your to your critique of how he treats women is that there seems to be a very a real fear of women in, in his in his movies. It isn't just that they're the object of of uh, just sort of the, a faceless hatred. I mean, it seems to come out of a fear. And you have this uh, sense where. Wild women are typically, they get domesticated. And you see this in like Marnie, for example, which I think that's the other Tippi Hedren movie, if, I'm, if I remember right. Marnie, Marnie, yeah, I'm sorry. I get yeah. that confused with Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca was an older one. But um, uh, you see that in Marnie where she's uh, equated symbolically with a horse, right? And, and so there's, a, a, there's this sense where um, the movie is about domesticating these wild women. Notorious is about this too. You have this woman mm-hmm. who is, has a notorious... Uh, reputation and, and she gets uh, domesticated and famously for me, I mean the the kind of prototypical one for me is uh, North by Northwest, which the woman you're describing, the sort of um, hate, hateful woman, uh, is actually also the love object of Cary Grant, and you get this sense where at the end of the movie, another spoiler alert, I suppose they're hanging off of somebody's nose or something on the Mount Rushmore. I forget whose <laughs> nose it was. Yeah. Right. So, so the sort of geopolitical stage that I was talking about earlier is, is uh, kind of set for this interpersonal drama. And he's holding her uh, from falling. And then he's trying to say, come to me, come to me, or save me. I forget, or let me save you. And he pulls her up, and the, the shot cuts right to him pulling her over in bed. Okay, and so in the marriage bed uh, to be um, uh, more specific, and I feel like that's a moment where the film uh, just really fixates on the domestication of a wild woman, right? Of, which is a woman who is outside of the control of men, and and so and then of course the famous cut after that of the train going through the tunnel for, with obvious uh, uh, symbolic implication there, but uh, <laughs> uh, which is actually a I mean, which has become sort of the the standard Hitchcock gag at this point, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. you want to make fun of Hitchcock, that's the shot you make fun of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But again, it's so overt. I think he's just asking you to laugh along. Did you ever but, see that but, Simpsons episode where Homer and Marge are about to have sex, so they send the kids to uh, to the movies? And it cuts to a train going through a tunnel and fireworks <laughs> and a. Uh, and a hot dog falling off of a of a uh, factory <laughs> conveyor belt, and then it uh, then it cuts to the outside of the theater, and it says stock film footage. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that one. I haven't seen The Simpsons in years, though. So, um, but uh, I, in defense, though, I will say that 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 doesn't. Uh, and this is not to sort of uh, excuse any sexism in these movies, but I think it's more complicated because. And particularly today, I was just thinking about uh, Notorious with uh, North by Northwest. And I feel like there's one scene in Notorious towards the beginning when Cary Grant is riding with Grace Kelly and she's driving and she's drunk and her hair gets in her eyes so she can't see, which is sort of a symbolic way of taking power away from her and all that. And then later on in North by Northwest, there's a scene where Cary Grant is made to do that, uh, that exact same thing. And I can't believe that that was accidental. I feel like that movie was trying over and over to sort of feminize Cary Grant. Uh, and, and so I feel like there's a certain sympathy for the social position that women are placed in, in the movies. Uh, I'm not saying that it uh, is something that alleviates him of any blame for his uh, behavior or beliefs, but I do think it's a, a little bit more complicated than that. I feel like uh, in many cases, the male characters are 
uncomfortably put into a position that female characters are in in all of his movies. And I think it's sort of an acknowledgement of the unfairness of that. So am I just being good? Am I bending over backwards to just be too nice? <laughs> no, I mean, but somebody needs to. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Because Nathan and I just came in with uh, with both barrels. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, also so worth it's, noting yeah, that, spe- that speaking of blatant images, yeah, but, but <laughs> se- several of his several of his movies are based on works written by women. Like uh, Strangers on a Train is based by based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I think Dorothy Parker wrote Saboteur. Oh, maybe I don't know. But, but, so okay. I mean, it, it's not like he didn't work with women. His wife Alma was uh, did various things on almost all of his movies. His and, daughter. Yeah, his his daughter is is famously the daughter from uh, from Strangers on a Train. So so yeah, at the very least, you have to say he had a strange and conflicted relationship with women. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. Well, um, Nathan, I guess we started this a little bit, but we've had a running joke about hermeneutics ever since our Pulp Fiction episode. <laughs> so I'm giving you a chance to run with it here. And, and all right, all right. <laughs> As much as any filmmaker ever, probably Stanley Kubrick being the only rival, uh, Hitchcock's movies uh, invite its viewers, invite their viewers to uh, interpret what they see. Uh, it's from his famous cameos to set design to camera angles uh, to focus. Uh, Hitchcock seems to encode his movies with meticulous care. Uh, what can be gleaned by interpretation in these movies? And to back your answer up, can you provide us with a formal analysis of a particular scene and then offer up a, uh, an interpretation and then pass it on to Michael? Well, in the spirit of the question, I'm going to start with a wide-angle shot and then uh, zoom in to a very particular item. Uh, as a filmmaker, like I said before, I mean, it is impossible for me to separate the films that I look at, usually on a TV screen, let's be honest, uh, from the film theory, what little I have, which seems... Again, to take its vocabulary, by and large, from Hitchcock movies. Uh, so, I mean, when I look at a Hitchcock film, it's like I'm watching a, an introductory lecture to film theory. I mean, like you said, I mean, every contrast between light and dark, every close-up shot, every out-of-focus shot uh, seems rife with meaning. And, it, and it's one of those things where uh, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit off the reservation here and talk a little bit of philosophy of science. It's one of those things that, you know, sort of helps me, well, I, I, I guess it, it makes me appreciate uh, the work of Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher of science, who talks about how all observation is always theory-laden. Uh, so in other words, because I know that film studies as an intellectual discipline exists, I see certain things in a Hitchcock film that uh, I wouldn't see otherwise, Right. Now, to to zoom in a bit, I mean, one scene uh, that sticks with me is is from the movie uh, Strangers on a Train that we've mentioned before already. Uh, But it's when, uh, and I'm going to switch these characters around, but I believe it's when Bruno comes to visit Guy uh, after killing Guy's wife. Uh, and again, these movies are 50 years old. I, I'm not afraid of spoilers. Uh, but <laughs> also, that, I mean, you know that's going to happen in like the first 10 minutes of the film. So oh, true enough. That's, true that's enough. hardly right, a spoiler. Right. But uh, you know, one of the things about this scene is that you know uh, Bruno becomes sort of a figure for the inner satanic for Guy because he sort of appears across the street. He doesn't say anything. Guy has to look out the street to see him. He appears in the same shot, if I remember right, of 
is it the White House or the Capitol building? Mm, well, anyway, one of the iconic, you know, buildings in Washington, D.C., you see this devil figure in the film right next to the seat of power that, you know, is symbolic throughout the film. And then, I mean, what, what's, you know, truly terrifying about that scene is that when Guy goes over to confront him, you know, he's told what has happened. The glasses that his wife was wearing are passed to him, so he has to receive them in his hand. And then the two of them, as the shot ends, go off into the shadows together. And, I mean, it's, it's one of those scenes that is, you know, uh, sort of a, a send-up of the Faust narrative, right? Uh, this guy, really without knowing what he has done, has sold his soul to this devil figure, and then they go off together into the shadows to, I mean, basically destroy the rest of his soul. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, li- like you guys have already said, I mean, it, it's a frightening movie psychologically uh, in, you know, ways that really stick with you, and a lot of that has to do with, like, Danny was just saying the film work. Uh, there's, Michael... just, there's just so many shadows in that movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually also going to talk about Strangers on a Train, but I'm going to talk about the the very last scene, and maybe this is a spoiler. I don't know, but um, they they end up at a at a carnival, I believe it is, and they end mm-hmm. up on a merry-go-round. So you get the the hor- the carousel, the horses, and. Uh, the the carousel has been sped up beyond any speed that's safe. And it's really one of the most terrifying scenes in all of film. And if this is a movie about, about losing your innocence, right? If it's a, it's a, if it's a movie about being guilty of things, you had no idea you were guilty for it makes sense that it ends on a carousel going a million miles an hour, because mm-hmm. here we have this, this pleasant revolution of childhood sped up to the point where, um, the line between birth and death is no longer clear. It's it's the, the life cycle itself has been sped up, and and all of a sudden, someone who perhaps was young, morally speaking, has become very old and dirty, and and uh, you know, implicated in a way that he would prefer not to be, and and. and in a in a film full of terrifying images that stick with you forever, that's the mm. one that sticks with me the most. Is is that that carousel just going as fast as it possibly can and threatening to kill everybody around it? Mm-hmm. Well, I um I also want to talk about Stranger in a Train. I guess it's fitting. I want to actually go forward to the beginning of the movie, uh, and I think that one thing that um. Uh, one of the ways in which the kind of complicated moral nature of Guy in that movie is Farley Granger, who's the actor. And it's actually one of the weaknesses of that movie is is his performance. I have to say, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, he's not, not great. Yeah, he's not. He doesn't seem to be able to carry that 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 kind of weight. No, the, the, the film definitely carries him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the the guy that plays Bruno and I can't remember his name right now is, is pretty spectacular, actually. So, um, but uh, at the beginning of that movie, well, one of the the ways in which his dilemma is, is uh, I think, encoded is through a bit of homoeroticism. And, and I think that at the beginning of that movie, you sort of see this a bit uh, set up right from the beginning. And you, it begins with a shot of uh, what turns out to be Bruno's shoes uh, stepping out of a cab. And there are these kind of flamboyant sort of uh, white and black shoes that look very kind of fancy, um, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you see him getting out of the cab and then 
cuts to a shot of these more conservative shoes getting out of that cab, which turned out to be guys. And then cut the Bruno, cut the guy. You see their shoes sort of going in the same direction. Um, and they're at, towards this train where they meet. Um, and I think we've already spoken about the uh, significance of trains uh, symbolically. But um, I think that um, what's important about the order of those shots is that Bruno is always shown moving first. And so it doesn't look like Bruno is pursuing Guy. It looks like Guy is actually pursuing Bruno. And, and the meeting commences when uh, Bruno sits down, crosses his legs. Guy sits down across from him after that crosses his legs, and they tap feet. So there's a little footsie game going on right there. Uh, and then, oh, excuse me. And, and so it, for all the world, looks innocent, but uh, in the context, it really does look like a um, uh, guy is pursuing this relationship, which is, I think, adds weight to uh, the psychological guilt that Michael was talking about earlier in that he's getting something that he really does want. Um, but he just mm-hmm. doesn't have the sort of nerve to do it. Whereas Bruno is the sociopath who does have the nerve to do it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 uh, and then in that scene also, you see, uh, shadows on cast on Bruno's face. So he sort of looks like this sort of dark side of, of a uh, guy. And, and it really does, uh, the, the shot sequencing and, and staging and, uh, everything really does sort of set up this weird, um, subversive relationship, uh, let's just say. Uh, and, and that subversive relationship, uh, I think, is linked to in this movie, so you could call it homophobic if you want, but uh, is linked to in this movie a homicidal kind of impulse that, that uh, Farley Granger's character has in that movie. So I think that that movie is one that's particularly lent to maybe overreading. <laughs> you, you, you know what's interesting is, despite the novel being written by Patricia Highsmith, who wrote all kinds of novels with you know, homo, homoerotic undertones. She wrote uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, for example. Oh, oh wow. okay. So that's the same novelist. All right. Uh, except the homoerotic subtext does not really exist in the novel, apparently. That, that huh. was added by Hitchcock. Hmm. So I, I think that's interesting. Like, he out-homoeroticized Patricia Highsmith, for crying out loud. <laughs> that's funny. And, and you see, I mean, the, the crimes that they do are supposed to do for each other in that movie uh one is killing the wife and the other is killing the father i mean what sort of uh uh like what other i mean those are sort of symbolic of normal a uh, quote-unquote normal relationships like in, in normal social relationships and it's sort of that's the agreement they come to unspokenly but um and so yeah it seems to me that it's impossible to ignore that element of that movie but mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I I watched I rewatched that a couple of years ago, and I, or actually it was I guess that's just last year, and I mean it was unbelievable how blatant the the homoerotic subtext is. It's barely subtext. <laughs> I mean, when he goes to visit Bruno's house, it, it, I mean it really is he 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 does everything but come out and say I'm gay. Yeah, yeah. Pretty daring for 1951 under the Hayes Code. Yeah. And, and this is another movie we haven't mentioned mothers, but uh, like like crazy mothers are, are sort of another like endemic in, in Hitchcock's films. And, and so this is another one where the mother sort of has this bizarre relationship with a son. And I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, Hitchcock, he can't get away from that. So, um, which reminds me just on the topic. This is an aside. Have you ever seen one of his later movies, Frenzy? I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, like the guy who is the killer in that movie. By this point, everybody knows about Hitchcock and mothers, and there's always like a mother in the attic, right? Just from Psycho. 
So <laughs> the the guy who's the killer in Frenzy is like uh, calling from the upstairs window to the guy who's going to be vict- accused of his crimes. Uh, he says, hey, hold on a second. I want you to meet my mother. And he just pulls out this old lady from the window. It's almost just like a nod to like, <laughs> you've, you've seen this in every Hitchcock movie. Here's one more shot at it. So, uh-huh. uh, and, when it so yeah. and when it's not the mother, it's the wife, right? Like in um, like in Rebecca. Yes, yes. Uh, that sort of presence who won't go away. Right. So, so maybe it's not so much that he hates, because you, you, you do get the father in Strangers on a Train. Maybe it's not so much that he hates women as he just, <laughs> he's just chafing against all sorts of reasonable familial relationships. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're, that's a really good point. Well, Michael, Hitchcock's often seen as, like I've said, this like moment of modernism in cinema, uh, and his work is heavily oriented towards the psychological and these material conditions of human existence. Is there any like metaphysical element to his work that gets left out of discussions, uh, and how, or, or if not, how might these movies challenge or engage the faith of a believer? And then when you're done, you can let Nathan talk about McIntyre. <laughs> my, my, my inclination was really to say no to this question because I, I think of him as being someone who is interested mostly in psychology. Um, but I, you know, I did a little bit of research, which is to say I went to Google. And, and Christianity <laughs> Today actually published an article in 2006 about Hitchcock's Catholicism. It's by a guy, Peter, Peter Thomas Chataway, who uh, mm-hmm. is, is sometimes a guest on the, uh, the Kindling's Muse, if, if any of our listeners also listen to that podcast. Anyway. Um, Hitchcock was raised Catholic, and he claimed not to really be particularly Catholic as an adult, although he and his wife went to Mass every week for most of his life until the very end. Um, and, and Chataway points out some places in the films where Hitchcock's Catholicism may be coming to the forefront. And the one that I thought was most interesting is The Birds, um, because the birds in that film are a force without any kind of reason – without any kind of explainability. It's just something that descends, not coincidentally, from heaven onto humanity and, and punishes people for, in a lot of ways, just the condition of being human beings. And so I, I, I think I think if you look at the birds and see something theological, I don't think you're misreading that movie. And, and Chataway actually goes into a number of other films, and he, he talks a little bit about Catholic guilt and things like that, because again, it's impossible to talk about Hitchcock without talking about guilt. Um, and so if you want to connect that to his Catholicism, I think that's true as well. But for the most part, I think your initial impression is right, that he, he is not a metaphysical filmmaker. He is a psychological filmmaker, and, and the, the metaphysics are perhaps on the uh, on the outskirts of it. That reading the birds is interesting, though. I, I just recently watched that in my, my snow in, my, my little... Jack Torrance moment over break here. Um, and we, uh, uh, I've always been sort of like, I feel like the reading of the birds as being a psychic projection of the mother's jealousy of this new sort of rival for her son's affection. It just seems a little easy to me. And, and so it, I, I think that is probably what's going on, but it didn't seem right. But this reading of it, that's really interesting. I have to think about that more. I, I have to maybe watch that one more time. That's, that's a really cool uh, insight. Thank you. Sorry, Nathan, I cut you off. Sorry. Michael. I mean, it's it's interesting that a number of important mid-century filmmakers are are at least raised Catholic. And I, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of him and John Ford, whose movies are also not, you know, not, not particularly metaphysical movies. And yet there's a weird sort of quasi-Catholic sensibility lurking there mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. Ford as well. So I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would only add to Michael's reading of the birds, which I, I also hadn't heard, but I like it, uh, is that, you know, what we sort of discussed before where, you know, psychoanalysis is certainly at the core of his movies, but I, I think Michael Michael's right that there's a sort of boundary to the powers of psychoanalysis uh, that he doesn't really explore so much as he gestures to. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I think it might be in those gaps that you can find some kind of uh, metaphysical or spiritual element to it. Uh, but I, I, I agree with you, too. And I mean, I, the Hitchcock films I have seen are very, very concerned with the inner workings of a, a, a medical mind. I mean, you know, it can be uh, healthy, which isn't all that common, or it can be diseased in some way. Uh, but there's not that great a sense, except, I mean, like on that reading of the birds, uh, that, you know, there is a connection to realities beyond that's blatant, at least. Even to the point where I, I would I would have difficulty, despite him using a lot of imagery that is common to existentialism, most, uh-huh. you know, most notably in Vertigo, right, which is a classic existentialist image. I would have trouble even calling him an existentialist filmmaker in any meaningful way because he's so interested in medicalizing human guilt. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I would, I guess, point to that seems to at least point towards something transcendent is, uh, people, I think don't remember well enough that he did a number of sort of, um, practically propaganda movies uh, for, for World War II for the Allies. And, and so they really, uh, there's four, Foreign Correspondent is one of them I'm thinking about. And I'm going to mention another one here uh, in a bit. But uh, there's a number of these movies that are very sort of pro-Allies. And, and it really does, um, he really does seem to, in those movies, uh, and they're really interesting. It's the really interesting movies to watch. Saboteur, I think, or Sabotage, maybe. I think it's Sabotage. Uh, Saboteur or Sabotage, it's one of those two, uh, is another one of these movies. But uh, it's, uh, uh, he really does seem to acknowledge a sense of justice, at least, uh, in those movies mm. that, um, you don't nec- that isn't really consistent with the Hitchcock of Psycho and the Birds and, and uh, Strangers on a Train uh, and, and, uh, and, and movies like that. So I do feel like there is a sense of it, it, within this sort of vague patriotism uh, that mm-hmm. uh, you see in these movies pointing towards something that is, transcendent of human psychology um and i don't know if that is me again just trying to defend him in ways that he doesn't need to be defended but uh that's something i i I wonder about well um nathan let's wrap this up finally by uh suggesting a hitchcock film that we think offers our listeners a useful way into this body of work. Uh, give us a film, a synopsis, and maybe a reason that a podcast listener should see it. And when you're done, you can pass it on to Michael. Very good. Uh, the film that I'd like to recommend to our listeners uh, is Notorious. Uh, it is a film from the 40s, uh, and it is the story of Devlin and Alicia, which are a sort of pair of star-crossed lovers, not because of a family feud, as in Shakespeare's famous tale of the same, uh, but because they are espionage agents, they are spies. And one of the things that just tears me up, I mean, I I revisited this movie, I didn't watch the whole thing in preparation for this episode, is that just time after time in this movie, uh, you see that, I mean, there are almost... 
Oh, gosh. There are moments when the characters are basically committing a sort of emotional, spiritual suicide uh, in the interest of motives that are, I mean, under the surface. And again, I mean, you would expect that in an espionage film. I I would just commend it to our our viewers because, unfortunately, the the spy genre uh, has in, in recent decades been pretty much eaten up and all the oxygen has been taken up by James Bond and his knockoffs. Uh, and Notorious, in my mind, is a film that really explores the psychology of a life of deception uh, in a way that, you know, uh, not only the, the James Bond novels, but especially the James Bond films, just sort of slide over like it's not there. So the, uh, the newer ones don't do that as much, do they? I haven't seen the... Uh... Daniel Craig James Bond films, but my understanding is they're they're attempting to be a little more psychologically nuanced. Uh, Casino Royale did. Um, Quantum of Solace, not nearly as much. Before, and I, and before I, then, and you'd I, have to go back almost to like Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I haven't seen Skyfall, so I won't comment on that. But I mean, yeah, you're right, Michael. I, I should uh, give a nod to Casino Royale, which actually does have a a moral element at the very least. Uh, but I, I, I still like Notorious better. <laughs> um, the more I think about it, the more Strangers on the Train might, Strangers on the Train might be Hitchcock's best film. Okay. But, uh, the one I want to talk about is Rear Window, which is the one that I watched in college that got me very interested in Hitchcock. And, um, it's a, you know, wonderfully suspenseful film. It's also very funny. It also has quite a bit to say about voyeurism and guilt and all these other things that Hitchcock likes. It also has his one strong, powerful, sympathetic female character. Um, but what I love about it is the set dressing. You, I forget which one of you quoted Truffaut earlier about Greenwich Village. And, and man, it my, have to be Danny. <laughs> my, my understanding about, about what Greenwich Village is comes almost entirely from Rear, Rear Window. And which, you know, I've been to Greenwich Village. I know it's not like it is in the movie, but who cares, man? Like the Coen brothers said about raising Arizona, it's an Arizona of the mind. And that's a, that's a Greenwich Village of the mind. It's this place that's, you know, it's always, always either dark or it's it's uh that that wonderful mid-morning time it's just it's just a what a great set that is and they built the whole thing in a sound stage the entire set and it's life-size like there's mm-hmm. actually the two life-size apartment buildings across from each other that they built and oh man do i love the world that movie deposits you into and mm-hmm. and and the, the whole movie uh the jimmy stewart character jeffrey or jeffries is constantly complaining about how boring it is. And all I can think of when I see it is uh, how could you not want to live on that soundstage? <laughs> so, I mean, it's a great movie. And like I said, it's suspenseful and moving and all those other things, but uh, I'm going to recommend it if, if only for the set. Uh, no, it's a great movie. And I think it's my favorite Hitchcock cameo too. Uh, in the, there's like a songwriter uh, that's across the way from him and Hitchcock at one point is fixing his clock, uh, and so do, I think. Do that's you know like who the... that? Speaking of cameos, do you know who that songwriter is? No. Ross Bagarian. I don't. I can't pronounce his last name, but you know him better as David Seville. Oh, you're kidding of me! Of the uh, <laughs> of the Chipmunks. Yeah, that's that's him. Wow, I did not know that. So that's th- there's great. something uh, for your next trivia night. That is really ba- really cool. Ba- Bagsadarian, I guess it is. I don't know. Oh, wow, that's really great. Um, but yeah, no, I think that, I mean, because Hitchcock 
as, as an artist, right? Him fixing the clock of the artist in that, in that scene, I think is just a really kind of very cute, uh, uh, cameo. Um, well, I'm going to actually, I have to, I'm, uh, I'm sort of debating. So I want to point towards one, uh, which is uh, shadow of a doubt, which was Hitchcock's own favorite movie of his. Uh, and it's, probably my favorite of his too uh and it's got joseph cotton playing a bad guy which is really great but there's it's really great um uh meditation on doubling like you have this sort of young girl who has been doubled with her uncle and there's this very strange relationship between them and basically during this movie this young girl comes to see the darkness of the world right and and i think that it's a very interesting movie um but that's not the one I actually want to recommend. I think uh, more people will see that than will see Lifeboat without any sort of prompting. And so I would recommend people see Lifeboat. This is a, um, a force of filmmaking skill, for one thing. The whole movie takes place literally on a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. There aren't any uh, chases. It's all sort of uh, emotional uh, uh, action in, in the movie. Yes, <laughs> yes. And also a great cameo, like the way Hitchcock finds his way in here is one of them finds a newspaper and there's like a weight loss ad in the newspaper with like is it a before and an after and Alfred Hitchcock is the model for that. So, uh, which is <laughs> it's a great, it's a great cameo for that movie. But, um, but it's, it's a, a World War II movie uh, and they have this moral dilemma whether to pick up this uh, uh, Nazi who's, there's been a, a boat act or like a U-boat has tried to, has sunk Somehow there's been a boat accident between a U-boat and an Allied boat. And all of these survivors from the Allied boat end up on this uh, 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 lifeboat. And they pull on this other person who turns out to be a Nazi. And they have to decide, you know, what our principles are. And if we actually follow our principles as people of the Allies, like, will we not save this person uh, or should we let him die? And so this becomes like one of the real kind of like morally troubling movies of the movie. And they bring him on and he turns out to be everything you'd think a Nazi would be. (laughs) And so uh, it's actually one of the more kind of psychologically and emotionally interesting uh, Hitchcock movies that I would, I would recommend people see. Have you got any of you guys seen that one? I have not. I've heard it's very interesting. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, that'll be it for today. Uh, Michael, I believe you have next week. Would you like to tell us about what you would like to share with us? Yeah, you know, we were going to do something else, but I, I'm calling an audible here because I, I feel bad about not doing the Cather episode. Now, I don't think we're going to be able to do a full Cather episode because I don't think it's fair to ask Nathan to read two Cather novels <laughs> in a yeah, week. Thank you. <laughs> so what we're going to do instead is we're going to look at a single Cather short story. It's a late period one. I think it's one of the very best short stories ever written. Um, in American lit or any other country's literature, it's called Neighbor Rosicki. Um, so we're going to be we're going to be reading that story and doing a close reading of it for uh, next week's episode. All right, Rosicki. Okay, um, I have no idea. This. You have to point me towards that one. So, well, uh, thanks again. This was a lot of fun for me. Uh, I enjoy always always talking to you guys about this sort of stuff, and uh, I always learn a lot, which is the the great reason for doing this. And so. Uh, I am Danny Anderson of Emanuel College, and I am saying goodbye for uh, Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer. Uh, if you'd like to check out more of the Christian Humanist podcast, please go to christianhumanist.org. And if you have any comments, uh, if one of us were out of line about something or we forgot something egregious, send us an email at, uh, Christian, at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. 
And for Michael and Nathan, I am Danny Anderson saying goodbye and let your sins be strong and your faith be stronger.